So hey guys, we're back with another one. And uh, I think you're gonna love this one. I say that, I, you guys know me by now uh, when I say that I think you're gonna love this one. I think you're gonna love this one. But this is gonna be a, a very in-depth um, podcast. It's gonna be a lot to it. So I'm gonna need you to really listen to this, this historian and researcher and uh, you're gonna learn a lot about a subject that some people don't know a lot about, including myself. And so if you hear me asking questions that's like, well, that's kind of a silly question. It's because I really don't know. And this man has the answers about this topic. Of course, I want to thank my friends at the Tombstone Epitaph, Arizona's longest running newspaper. You can find the Tombstone Epitaph at tombstoneepitaph.com. I urge you to become a subscriber and get that delivered right to your door and you won't have to worry about it. And do the three years for 60 because if you do year to year to year, it's 75 bucks. Or if you just pay for three years at 60 and it saves you $15. I also want to thank my friends at the Wild West History Association, my second family. Uh, you can find out all about them at wildwesthistory.org. Uh, we're getting ready for Roundup 2023 in San Antonio, Texas, and we would love to see you there. Um, there is so much going on in Western history. Uh, you can find them at their website at wildwesthistory.org, as well as their Facebook page, which I really urge you to go on and, and, and join on Facebook. You can also find them on YouTube. And if you're an Instagrammer like me, go to Wild West History. You can look them up at Wild West History Association. And my friend Dave Guyton is running that page. And if you're an Instagrammer, you can get history delivered to your Instagram page. And so it's crazy. You can get them on the website. You can get them on YouTube. You can get them on Facebook, on Instagram. Like you can get Western history just brought right to you no matter where you're at and any platform that you use. So again, uh, I urge you to join the Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org. So a while back, um, I was reading in the Tombstone Epitaph, and this gentleman, uh, my friend Eric Wright, does book reviews, and there was a book review about this man, and his, his name is Daniel J. Burge, and Daniel has written a book uh, about the manifest destiny. Um, what the heck is, what is the name of it? I'm looking all oh, right here. The, the failed vision of empire, the collapse. And the what? collapse of manifest destiny. There you go. So he wrote a book about it and it's a subject that I, if you're like me, you sat in high school civics or history and the teacher would bring up manifest destiny and you're like, eh, how soon before I get out of class? And then as I start digging into Western history and learning more and more about it, the manifest destiny comes around and I'm like, I, I don't know anything about it. I want to know more. And lo and behold, in the epitaph is this book review. Since then, I've contacted Daniel and Daniel's on the phone. Hello, sir. How are you? Doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, you've written a book about the manifest destiny. But you're also a really you're a you're a um, a really well scholared man. Um, you're a teacher, correct? Yeah. So I, right now I'm work at the Kentucky Historical Society. So for two years, two and a half years, I taught at the University of Alabama, 
And then I took a job at the Kentucky Historical Society where I'm at right now. So I work as an editor there. Because your bio says you're an associate editor at the Kentucky Historical Society. You've mm-hmm. earned a PhD in history at the University of Alabama where you studied uh, under Civil War scholar George C. Rabel? Uh, he's, it's Rabel. Rabel. That's okay, close. wasn't sure. Uh, his focus is on Western expansion during the 19th century. He has published two chapters uh, in edited collections and his articles in the Western Historical Quarterly, the Pacific, the Pacific Horse Historical Review, I'm having a hard time today, and Studies in American Humor. His first book was published with the University of Nebraska Press in May 2022, and it's the failed vision at the collapse of the Manifest Destiny. Um, what else do we know about you? Um, you're a winner of numerous fellowships, including awards from the New England Regional Fellowship Consortium, the Charles Red Center for Western Stu- is it Western or Eastern? Oh, Western Western Studies. Studies, the Kentucky Historical Society, and the Massachusetts Historical Society. So you're you're like everywhere. So I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking, and I asked it probably window screening. You don't do window screening, do you? No, I don't. Oh. Uh, auto detailing? No? no, no. Okay, so he's laughing. Like no, but I'm sure he probably does a good job at washing the car. But if he said yes to any of those, I was going to bring him to Phoenix and and get him busy. But you you wrote a book about all of this. Um, you live in Lexington, Kentucky. Are you still in Lexington? Yes, I am. And and what made you? What what got this guy in life? into becoming who you are. I mean, there had to be influences in your life to where you said, I, you know what, I'm really into this, and holy cow, I want to do this for a living. Yeah, that's, that's a good question. Um, it was really in college when I was going through. I started off at community college, and I got a degree in general studies because I honestly did not know what I wanted to do at that point in time. The more history classes I took, though, the more interested I became in it. But at that time, it really wasn't an interest in Western history or or I really didn't have a specific focus. It was just, I started taking as many history classes as I could. I was just fascinated. I decided to get a master's degree. And I was at that time at University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And I was working with different professors. I was taking a lot of different classes. And that's where I came across the topic of Manifest Destiny. And I was just interested in it. I wanted to know more about it. I started looking at the U.S.-Mexican War, which I think gets sort of overlooked a lot of times in preference to the Civil War, which is what most people end up studying. And that sort of just fueled my interest in the process of Western expansion, Western history, and then ultimately Manifest Destiny. So it took a while for me to get there, but I think it just came down to when I took history classes I was lucky to have really good professors and it just fascinated me. And I think the older I've gotten, the more interested I've become in just learning as much as I can about history and, and more specifically about the West now. But as you're studying, right. And you're, and you're moving on and into your academic professional life and you're getting your degrees. Did you, did you just study them from a local point or did you say, Daniel, we're doing a road trip. I'm loading up. 
we are going places. Like, did you actually go to those places? That's what's been fun. And I think that was the most fun I've had is the fact that I've gone on crazy road trips in the sense of, as you were reading off some of the fellowships, I was in Massachusetts and I ended up driving. I ended up in Vermont because I was doing research. I went from Vermont to San Diego, drove across country, then started hitting different libraries and stuff. So I ended up at the Charles Red Center for the West, for Western Studies at BYU. So I sort of crisscrossed the country. I've been, I've been at Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Um, I went to school in Alabama. So I, I sort of toured the deep South for a time. Then New England went all around New England. So it's been fun to see the country. I grew up in Maryland. Mm. So for me, seeing the West was just fun. I'd never been to Yellowstone. I had never been to Utah and just getting the drive through and, and crisscross the country doing research was just fun and it was really enjoyable. And it's one of the reasons I want to keep doing history because I want to keep getting fellowships and keep driving across the country and um, not sort of lose that because that's really been one of the more enjoyable things about this whole process. But you, you chose a topic to specialize in that most people shy away from. And there's other books out there about the manifest destiny, but you chose this specific topic. What was it about the specific topic that you said to yourself, Daniel, like, I'm going to specialize in that. It was honestly, it was sort of happened. It was just sort of a weird coincidence. I was Working on a master's degree, and as part of that, you have to write a master's thesis. So you have to have, I mean, at the time, it was probably 100 pages, a sort of short um, history of something, and I was fishing for a topic. And I was looking through, I knew I wanted to do something about, I was hoping, the U.S.-Mexican War, so sort of specialize on that. But I came across a speech in a guy of a guy in Congress who just started making fun of Manifest Destiny, and it just fascinated me. Like you, I had only heard the story through textbooks. I sort of vaguely had an idea of what Manifest Destiny meant. But I wanted to learn more about the people who were making fun of it, who didn't believe in it. And not many people write about it. So that's been both challenging, but also really helpful for me. Because since not a lot of people have written about it, it gave me a chance to sort of look at it in a new way, which was really enjoyable. So it, it was sort of coincidental. I did not plan on writing about Manifest Destiny. Most of what I ended up doing was, oh, why are these people talking about it? Why are they talking about it this way? And then I just did as much research as I could to try to figure out how people in the 19th century saw Manifest Destiny and what they sort of believed about it. And that eventually grew into the book um, years and years later. But I started off just, why are these people standing up in Congress and saying, I don't believe in Manifest Destiny or this is a stupid idea? Or this is something that is just dumb that we don't need. I was just fascinated by those people. And I sort of wanted to understand what they believed in and why they believed what they believed. So if you're wondering who you're you're hearing on your phone or a mobile device or car, we're talking to Daniel J. Burge. He is the author of A Failed Vision Empire, The Collapse of the Manifest Destiny from 1845 to 1872. You can find the book at Amazon and booksellers uh, near you, but really Amazon, if you're listening in Europe or overseas, Amazon's the best place to go 
to get this book and you're going to want to get it because it's very informative. One of the things that I was going to ask you, and we talked about it in a pre-interview, which is in layman terms, what is the manifest destiny for somebody who doesn't know and could be listening to the podcast going, what, what are they talking about in layman terms? What is it? Okay. This is where it gets a little bit tricky. So I'll try to break this down because if you look online and if you just like, let's say you go to your computer and you just Google it and you type in manifest destiny, what you're probably going to come across, especially if you hit Wikipedia or if you hit a lot of popular sites is a very famous image from 1872 that's painted by a guy named John Cast, and it's sort of that angel of progress floating across the screen heading west. Most people will say that Manifest Destiny simply meant the U.S. expanding from east to west, so essentially moving from, let's say, Maryland and sort of the east coast to Texas and then eventually sort of scooping up Utah, California, Arizona, et cetera. So just that sort of east to west push. Manifest destiny is the belief that the United States was destined to spread west. The argument that I make in the book and why my book is a little different is what I try to show is that manifest destiny for people living in the 19th century. So for those who are actually talking about it, who debated it, who took it very seriously – is that for them, Manifest Destiny didn't just mean the push west, even though that's part of the story, but that Manifest Destiny also meant taking over Canada, taking over Mexico, taking Cuba, so that the United States would essentially be the same as the continent of North America. So it's not just, if you will, an east-to-west push. It would be that the U.S. would eventually somehow in some way take over Canada, which again, to us seems crazy today. Like what the U S is just going to invade Canada and take it, but that's very much part of the manifest destiny. That belief when the U S goes to war with Mexico, the other part of that belief is that the U S isn't just going to take what we today think of as the Southwest California, all the way to Texas. If you want to kind of throw Texas in there, but that it would actually have taken all of Mexico. So what I look at in the book, I'm going to try to explain, is why people believed in Manifest Destiny, why they thought it was sort of destiny for the United States to be this super gigantic country that would span from, again, they wouldn't use these terms, but Canada to Mexico, and that the United States would just be this massive sort of empire, why that idea eventually fell apart. As the U.S. did not obviously get to take over Cuba and Canada is still its own country and Mexico is still its own country. So you sort of see those ideas play out. Um, but again, if you look it up, if you just Google it, I think this is the challenge of writing a book like this. If you just Google it, or if you look in sort of a general history textbook, it might give you a different definition of what manifest destiny is. What I really try to explain in the book and why I really hope your listeners will pick it up and read it is so that they can see, okay, Here's how people in the 19th century, so people living in the 1840s and 50s and 1860s, all the way through the Civil War, this is how they thought about Manifest Destiny. This is how they debated it. This is why it's important. And I think it is important because it shapes how the U.S. grows, sort of the boundaries of the United States today, and sort of what we think of as the United States. So 
as an American in that time, mm-hmm. let's say the 1840s, because that's where your book really starts was 1845. Yes. Yeah. I'm living on the East Coast, and there's a discussion about, hey, have you heard the news? We're going to spread west, and we're taking it all. And if I was the same guy, you know, I'd probably be in a blue-collar job. I'd be a blacksmith or a plumber or a builder or something, because that's what I do for a living is blue-collar. Mm-hmm. I would be like, well, sure, sounds good to me. But there were people against it. Why were people so adamantly against it? Well, I think that that's a really good point because I think what you also have to have to look at and what I try to explore a little bit in the book is that if you are, let's say, working just a regular job in Pennsylvania or you're in Massachusetts or even if you're in Georgia or Alabama, do you really think your life would be benef- it would benefit you if the U.S. gets California or Arizona? Like – I know those aren't concrete things in the sense that for them, they have a really vague idea of what California is. What I try to hit on in the first couple chapters of my book, when the U.S. starts debating getting California during the U.S.-Mexican War, there's a lot of politicians who stand up and go, California is worthless. California is terrible. We don't need California. It's a desert. They say the exact same thing about Arizona, the same thing about New Mexico. And you have to sort of think, put yourself into their perspective. If you're living in Maryland or you're living in Virginia, you probably don't know a lot about what California looks like. You really don't know much about what Arizona looks like. If a politician stands up or somebody in your neighborhood stands up and goes, I heard it's just a desert or I heard it's it's really not worth it. Then for a lot of people, they're saying, okay, does it really benefit me or should we really go to war with Mexico for what I think is a desert? Or how does this sort of benefit my life? Now, as you and I know, there are a lot of benefits to expansion in the sense that the U.S. economy gets bigger. You have more industry. The U.S. starts to grow. It eventually turns into a much larger and more powerful nation. And I think even today, if you look at California, if you look at the Southwest, I mean, Texas, California, you're looking at states that are very large, that have a lot of people. A lot of individuals living in the U.S. in the 1840s and 1850s just don't see that. They look at it and go, "Uh, we really don't need California. It's just not worth our money. We can't make anything out of it. So that's the debate I try to track out. And they have those same debates about, Canada and about Mexico City, like, would it benefit the United States if those places became a part of the United States? So again, what I try to show is not that everyone agreed or everyone disagreed, but simply that there were different opinions about it. And a lot of people thought this is a bad idea. And a lot of people thought this is a good idea. And it did depend on sort of your political perspective and who you were and what you believed in. Sometimes it came down to your religious beliefs. Sometimes it came down to your economic beliefs, your background, but all of those were factors in these debates. So I think, you know, if you were living in the 1840s, it might come down to what political party you belong to and and how you saw it because these things were presented to people in those ways. Okay. 
So here's my next question about that period. Mike is a blacksmith, plumber, doing whatever, blue collar. How would I have known about California in these Western areas and the, that wasn't California then, but was these Western was, did, did the Lewis and Clarks of the world or the States go out and they brought this information back and did the government say, Oh my God, we got to have it. Was it that simple that said we need to expand because they didn't, I would assume they base their expansion and it's assumption. And if I'm wrong, say, Mike, you're full of crap. You're wrong. Um, was it based on those type of things where people came back like a Lewis and Clark with maps and said, holy cow, you got to see this. No, you're actually, you're absolutely right on, oh, on that point. What happens is after, especially after sort of the Lewis and Clark expedition and mm -hmm. then from the 1810s, 20s, 30s, you have a lot of individuals travel to those regions and they'll write what are known as travelogues. So essentially, they'll write sort of a story about their experiences in, let's say, California or some other region. And a lot of times they'll say, this land is amazing. This land is great. The U.S. could really use this territory. So they go back and forth. But a lot of what you'll see is sort of boosters and promoters and individuals who want people really on the East Coast but throughout the United States to take an interest in those regions. So it is the Lewis and Clark expedition of its later sort of scientific expeditions that are sent West that report back on what they were able to find. Those really shape opinion. But I think what's important and what you'll see play out during, let's say, the U.S.-Mexican War, people still debate those things. So, yes, you'll have very positive reports come out. You'll have the Lewis and Clark expedition. You have other expeditions down the road where these individuals will say, this is a really worthwhile property. The U.S. should really take this. You also have a lot of people who travel west who report back and say, uh, it's really not worth anything. This is a desert. This is worthless land. There's no industry out here. Other people will look in and just take what they know about the United States and go, uh, I don't think you can grow cotton in California. California won't be profitable. So you sort of have that back and forth. So if you're living in that time, those are probably the debates you're seeing. There's a lot of people who look at it and go, oh, man, when they read these travelogues and these reports, they're going, oh, this is great. We definitely, as the United States, should get this land. We could use this land. But there's a lot of people who are also like, ah, do we really need it? Is it really worth the money? Is that the role of government to spend money for, for land? They'll have those debates all the time. So if you're wondering, we're talking to Daniel J. Burge. Um, his, he's an author, historian, researcher. He's written a book called A Failed Vision Empire, The Collapse of the Manifest Destiny, 1845 to 1872. If you're wondering why I'm asking questions about the very beginnings, because I'm a person who likes to know the origins of and how we get to a point. And we'll eventually get to more about the manifest, how it broke apart and, and it was disliked or liked or whatever. And, uh, and if we end up having to do a part two, we're going to do a part two. Daniel and I have already talked about it and he's agreed to come back again. As America grew 
and more and more people were pushing west, meaning even from the east coast and going to Kentucky, you know, you're pushing west. Mm -hmm. Was there, because I don't know, I'm trying to figure out my words, but was there a, did the government get together Lawmakers, lawyers, senators, all the people that were running the eastern United States at that time. Did they get together in a meeting someplace and say, we're moving west. We've, we've seen the reports and I want it as, I want it as mine. I, I know it's simplistic, but what did that happen? Like, was there a point to where they said, okay, we're going to do this and starting June 5th, we're out. Like, how did that happen? That's a good so the, what I'm looking at specifically and sort of my area that I'm most comfortable with is the U.S.-Mexican War. So when the U.S. Okay. annexes Texas in 18, when the U.S. takes Texas essentially um, after the Texas Revolution and brings it into the United States and then the ensuing sort of war with Mexico um, a few years down the road. What's interesting about your question and what I think we need to understand is there's never like a grand plan, if you will, where individuals well, get together and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. And this is sort of our plan. This is, this is what, you know, how we're going to acquire this and this is what's going to happen. Yeah. Even if you look at Texas, it takes the United States really a decade to decide, hmm, we need to get through annexation. We need to push this through Congress. It's very much debated. When the U.S. does eventually get Texas through, so they push a bill through both the House and Senate, it barely gets through in the Senate. It goes through. The United States ends up in a war with Mexico. Even during that war, and what I would encourage listeners to do, the great thing about the U.S.-Mexican War is that James K. Polk, so the president at the time, he kept a really detailed diary over the course of his presidential administration about debates that he had. And what's really cool about his diary is if you read through the large excerpts from it or you just work your way through it, he debates all the time what should the U.S. do during the war, as in should the U.S. take California, should the U.S. take you know, all of Mexico, should the U.S. get Mexico City? Should the U.S. expand its borders past what we think of what are the borders today? Should the U.S. sort of just kind of keep adding territory? So what I would say to answer your question is not really, there's never really a point where people agree or say we need to take X amount of land, this is what we're going to do. What always happens is, they debate what we should do. How much land do we need? Is it really worthwhile? And then they usually end up, in the 19th century at least, drawing a compromise. As in, okay, we'll take this chunk of land. So what becomes the Southwest from California sort of stretching down to Texas. But we're not going to take, you know, X land from Mexico. We're just going to kind of draw the, the borders here. Mm -hmm. But there's never a point in time where they say we have to have this or we have to have that or here's the grand plan. It's more of a we're in the midst of a war. 
what will our Congress accept? What are the boundaries are sort of logical? Where can we draw them? Where would a natural boundary look best? Those types of things. So there's not really a grand plan. I hope in the future, and it, I, I'm not an expert on this area at all, but to sort of look more into the Louisiana Purchase and mm. sort of the early expansion west, because it is fascinating. And as you mentioned, I'm in Kentucky, which sort of has these stories about Daniel Boone and Americans pushing past the Appalachian, the Appalachians and sort of moving gotcha. westward and sort of the early west, as opposed to, you know, the era I deal with now, which is 1840s, 1850s, thinking Texas, Arizona, California, moving even way more west. Uh, but I, I've always been interested in, I really love the study of the Louisiana Purchase more. I just, that's not something that. I don't cover that in the book, and I haven't really looked a lot into it. Oh, quit doing your auto detailing and your window screening and get on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Stop traveling throughout the country. Just... Yeah, what's wrong with you? I'll screw it up. Um, so I kind of understand the Mexican side, you know, the the and Mexico and that part mm -hmm. of it. Then why not Canada that we call today as Canada? Why wasn't that? pushed into? What prevented them from that? So there's really two factors that play a role in it. The one, as as much as we might hate to admit it today, <laughs> being proud Americans, Great Britain is really powerful. So England, which which owns, and, and Canada has sort of a weird colonial relationship too, in the sense that it's a colony, it gets its independence over time, they never have to go to war with Great Britain like the United States does. It's more of a gradual process. But if the U.S. were to, let's say, invade Canada, which it does during the War of 1812, when the United States does move troops into Canada, the problem is the British have a good military and that we know they will probably fight back. So to give you a really good example of this, as the U.S. is moving westward, and I don't really touch on this in the book, but it's sort of in the background of my story, the U.S. moves into the Oregon Territory. So there starts to become debates over, okay, what's our boundary in the northwest? So kind of looking at Washington and Oregon and that area, what's the boundary with Canada? Why does the United States end up fighting a war against Mexico over our southern boundary but when it comes to our northern boundary, we end up just working out a peace treaty or a deal with Great Britain. They just draw the line, and that's today what we think of again as sort of that's Canada. This is the United States. But it's really a process of negotiation between the two powers. So why we don't eventually attack Canada, I think a lot of it is tied into in the era I'm looking at. There's a fear that if you invade Canada, Great Britain is going to send in an army. There's that fear of Great Britain still militarily is superior to the United States in the mid-19th century and that we might not be able to beat them. So that's sort of the fear of that. Also sort of the fact that there's a lot of people, and it's kind of hard to explain, but within the United States, there's just this belief, and it really percolates in the 1850s, but it goes all the way through the Civil War, that at some point in time, Canada is just going to decide to sort of join the United States. So the U.S. won't have to invade. The U.S. won't have to send in troops. But that Canada will just somehow, in some way, 
annex itself or, or just sort of join the U.S. And so the United States would simply acquire Canada really without fighting the war. So sort of how you see during the American Revolution, maybe as your best example, where the colonies get together and create a union. They sort of think Canada will eventually do that and just join the United States. But I think what I try to hit on, we always think of our southern border and we think of the struggles with Mexico and sort of how that line is drawn. Americans in the 1840s and 1850s thought a lot about Canada. So they did constantly think, how can we get Canada? Do we benefit from getting it? Why do we draw the line where we do? What should our northern border look like? Like those were real debates. I know today those don't tend to pop into the news as much as other debates um, with their southern border. But at that point in time, there was a lot of talk about, oh, let's get Canada. Let's annex Canada. Let's take Canada. Even though we can look back and say that's kind of crazy. It doesn't happen. Um, if If you're living in 1840s and 50s, you think that's a real possibility, even if you don't necessarily know how to do it. They just think it might happen one day. So I can kind of see, you know, the this very smooth boundary between Canada and Mexico and the Great Lakes are in there, but there's a very mm-hmm. smooth boundary, and you're like, okay, I can kind of see that. And I think, too, like you said, they didn't really want to engage the British and stir up all that problem, right, and go to war over that like crazy. Mm-hmm. Instead, they just worked out a, a friendship agreement and a handshake, and here's the line, you're good, I'm good, bye. <laughs> But as you were saying that, I believe Dominican Republic was included in that, in the Manifest Destiny, and Cuba. So why would they look at two locations that have ocean between them and say, that looks good too? That's one of the strangest things. One of the oddest things about this, and again, this is something that's almost just specific to the early 19th century. They see they see Cuba almost as being a part of Florida. And again, there's obviously a different sort of history and background. And I know it's an island, so it's different. But individuals do, from Thomas Jefferson to James K. Polk, you can take it all the way almost through the Spanish-American War. People just think that Cuba will eventually be not just like an island out there that has a government that's friendly to the United States, but that the U.S. can purchase it. Um, I give an example in the book. James K. Polk, when he's president, is able to carry out a war with Mexico and he gets a huge amount of land. So he gets you know, basically acquires from Texas to California. I mean, it's massive. One of the first things Polk does as the war with Mexico is winding down, he sends his minister over to Spain, and they end up offering, I think it's almost $100 million to Spain if Spain would be willing to sell Cuba to the United States. Now, Spain just goes, you guys are crazy. We're not selling this to you. Like, this is a territory that's very valuable to us. And they just sort of laugh at the U.S. like, no, this is not happening. But for James K. Polk, like, that was a real idea that the U.S. could just go to Spain, buy Cuba, and just like the U.S. purchases Louisiana, does the Louisiana purchase with France, 
that the U.S. can just do the same thing with Spain and just buy Cuba and win. We just have Cuba as sort of an additional state. I get into this in the last chapter of my book, which I think was one of the more interesting ones. After the Civil War, the Dominican Republic actually approaches the United States and says, if you want to, we will join the United States. So they would essentially become a part of the United States. They'd become a state. President Grant, who comes into office after he wins the election in 68, he's like, this sounds like a great idea. Like, why not? We could have more territory. It'll improve the U.S. So Grant pushes a treaty into the Senate it gets blocked but if it doesn't get blocked like it's, again it sounds strange to us today but the dominican republic would have been part of the united states and probably like we think of our like hawaii is today we just have the dominican republic as as one of the states in the united states so what i try to trace out in my book and what i hope i can sort of explain I explained in each chapter is is why some of those things don't happen. Like, why does the U.S. not get Canada? Why does the U.S. not get Cuba? What happens when we try to buy the Dominican Republic? Like, why don't those things pass? Because looking back, if you just have a few more senators who want to vote a different way, that treaty would have gotten through the U.S. Senate, and the U.S. would have had the Dominican Republic. Now, what would have happened with it? We we can only guess and speculate. We don't know. But that's a possibility. And it's the same with Cuba. I mean, if Spain would have said, sure, you know, like if they'd have pulled a Napoleon and said, yeah, we'll sell this to you in the sense of Louisiana. Does the U.S. own Cuba at that point? What does the U.S. do with it? Does it become a state? Those are things that people thought about. Um, today, we can look back and go, of course, you know, Cuba's an independent country. It does sort of what it wants to do. And the Dominican Republic elects its own leaders. But for them, they really thought about, okay, if the U.S. has this, if the U.S. is this big, why can't we get bigger? And why can't we keep growing and, and keep expanding? Again, we're talking to Daniel J. Burge. He's written a book, um, A Failed Vision Empire, The Collapse of the Manifest Destiny, 1845 to 1872. Uh, I urge you to go on Amazon and buy it, especially if you're in Europe in our countries in Ireland and Scotland and Canada, um, that we have listeners, that's the best place to go and get it because it really saves you a lot of money on shipping. So again, um, he's written, Daniel's written, it's called A Failed Vision Empire, The Collapse of Manifest Destiny, 1845 to 1872. Let's move, if we can, and if you can answer it, if you can't, just say, Mike, I, I don't know. Okay. Let's move to today, 2022. I posted on my social media pages that I was going, that I'm learning about the manifest destiny due to you, due to you, because I knew the interview was coming up and I wanted opinions on it, on manifest. I wanted opinions on the topic. And the topic is extremely relevant today. Would you agree? Mm -hmm. Yes, no. I would definitely agree, yeah. Then why is that? Why is it that today, in 2022, that the manifest destiny 
is still a hot topic. It's not something that we would, you know, you're going to go to Chili's, you know, so Mike, how'd it go today at work? <laughs> oh, I'm talking about Manifest Destiny with the guys around the cooler. But in all fair honesty, when I brought it up, I had a lot of people say, you know what, I, I've kind of got an issue with it. I, I did in the beginning, but I, as I dig more into it, I've got an issue with it. The boundaries are set. Everybody's United States isn't getting any bigger. Canada's set in stone. You know, Cuba, Dominican Republic, Hawaii, everything is set in stone. Our boundaries are set. There's no more growth. We're not going to absorb anybody else. Mm -hmm. But yet the manifest destiny is still a discussion piece that people have strong opinions on. Why do you think that is? That's a really good question. Um, I think in my own research, I've been I've been surprised at the reception of the book, and, and not in a negative sense, because most of it's been really positive. Some people almost think as if you're writing about the topic that you must necessarily agree with some of the viewpoints that are being presented in the sense of, I think Manifest Destiny can be wrapped up in or become wrapped up in oh, if you don't believe in it, or if you push back against it, then do you think the United States should not have grown in the way that it did? In the sense of when people argued against Manifest Destiny in the 1840s and 1850s, but then the U.S. gets Texas and California, a lot of the opponents are like, well, do you want to give Texas and California back to Mexico? Is that sort of what you're interested in? So I think a lot of the debates over it are still over that, okay? If you're saying Western expansion was wrong, then is the U.S. sort of obligated in some way, shape, or form to make it right by giving territory back to other people? Or if you think, you know, it was morally wrong to take California, but then you take all the economic benefits from having California as one of the more, one of the largest and most prosperous U.S. states, what are you sort of saying about the U.S. So I've seen different people sort of approach this in different ways. I think a lot of it gets tied up in how people view the U.S. today. I also try to argue, and I try to lay this out in the book, and it is challenging. So many people define manifest destiny in so many different ways that sometimes people become very passionate about it are sort of getting these debates, if you like, like the Wikipedia page and where people talk about manifest destiny and it gets very heated on it of it's sort of the chats and all that sort of thing it's also because they just see it in different ways some people see it as western expansion i'm arguing that it meant a lot more than that and that it wasn't successful some people see it as being very successful so i do think it's important that as we move forward we sort of understand what they meant by it in the 19th century because I do think there's a lot of misunderstanding over manifest destiny and what it means, and that those misunderstandings and those disputes over what it means leads people to say, oh, then you're saying the United States should not have gotten any larger, or you're saying it should give back land, or you're saying it should do this, or you're saying it should do that. I just want to understand how people saw it in the 19th century and sort of understand what people meant by it. I'm just intrigued by why the... Why did the United States grow in the way that it did? Um, but I am fascinated. I'm also fascinated by the fact that so many years later, in 2022, people still have very strong opinions about it. 
And even people who don't know a lot about the 19th century, if you bring up Manifest Destiny, I've had this reaction from students. I've had it from colleagues. I've had it from other people. They'll give me their opinion on it, and they'll tell me what they think about it. (laughs) This is how I see it, and this is how I feel about it. So as a historian, that's good because people sort of understand it, but it's also challenging because as I lay out in the end of my book, I do think a lot of myths have grown up around Manifest Destiny and how we view it, and that we sort of have to understand the historical context of it and understand how people reacted to it, because then we can kind of understand Manifest Destiny more as just as, as a big concept, as opposed to sort of just using it, you know, just to bludgeon each other and to win a, a, a political discussion today. So we have about five minutes left. Okay. Goes fast. <laughs> You've read other people's books, I'm sure, about Manifest Destiny. You've read other authors, historians, researchers as well. I'm, I'm, I'm almost 100% positive, correct? Yes, yes. And as you were researching your book, because the internet, I'm sure, helped you with your research, as well as going to museums and and libraries and places where you found documents and things like that, right? Was there something that you found or dug up or read that was so profound that it changed Daniel's perception and view of the manifest destiny? Oh, you know what's interesting is as I was building out the book and as I was making edits, it wasn't always that my argument changed all that much because after a while I started to understand how people view things. But I'll tell you about one moment that kind of shook me and it was just, it was really, it was more just as a moment of personal growth as opposed to to changing my view on um, my topic itself. I was in a library at Yale and I was doing research and I was looking through diaries left from the U.S.-Mexican War. So diaries that had been kept by soldiers. And the one diary they brought to me, and if, if you've been in some of these archives, they're very interesting places because you kind of have to, you have to go through a security guard and they bring you into this room and then they, they set you down and they bring you a document and it's usually like a really old diary or something that's in a box and you're, you try to be very careful with it. So it's a very interesting place to be, but I opened up the cover and it was inscribed on it. And it was kind of one of those notes that just hits you as you're doing research. And the note simply said, um, it was in really nice cursive. Um, and it read, found among, this diary found among the bodies at Cherubusco, Mexico, shortly after the battle. And I just opened it and I'm, I'm, I just sat there for a second. It's like you're reading this guy's diary who we don't know a lot about. We only know really what he wrote down in the diary, who got caught up or who volunteered for the U.S.-Mexican War. He goes over, he dies in Mexico. Someone sends his diary back. And it was just one of those moments where I think as a historian, we write books and we can get very academic about things. 
But I think the one interesting thing for me as I was looking at that is you kind of just remember that these are people and that the events that we look at and we talk about and that we debate and that we see in the past, they were really important. When the U.S. decided to go to war with Mexico, which kind of, you know, includes the ideas of Manifest Destiny and those debates, there's really people who go over to Mexico, fight in the war, who die. And obviously that's something that impacts their entire family, the whole situation, and just remembering sort of the human stories of why we got into history in the first place. So there wasn't like that one big aha moment, but I think just from a personal level, as I've done research and as you see these things, you try to remember that you're telling people stories and you're trying to understand why they believed in what they believed and how they saw the world. And I think that's been the cool part of it. Also realizing how much some of these things did matter to people in the sense that, you know, we can talk about it today and go, oh, you know, that's a war or there's this or there's that, but just understanding the human element um, and, and sort of that back and forth. So, uh, so those were the things that for me was, was really cool. There wasn't that one moment where I sort of went, aha, I found this or I found that. But getting to dig into letters, I came across a postcard written by Mark Twain, which was really cool. I've gotten to touch and hold letters written by Zachary Taylor, which was pretty cool just because it's like, oh, man, he was president of the United States. Mm. And here's his letter, and I get to hold it in my hand and like feel it. And you see his handwriting and, and all of that sort of thing. So I think as a historian, those are the coolest moments for me is when I just get to do that. But also, as I think you brought up earlier – just sort of understanding ordinary people, how they felt about events, what they did, because I do think that can sometimes get lost um, in all of this. Man. And we, we've only, we're only talking about the first part of it. <laughs> I, we got to come back and talk about the end. And I, and if you guys are wondering if you heard like paper moving in the background, Daniel, as he's talking, like, more questions are coming up in my head that I want to ask. And if you guys are wondering, like Daniel and I, we have no pre-made questions. I, I do these 100% unedited and in, 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 in a live format. And so Daniel is answering these questions that we didn't, we didn't talk about in the beginning. So he had all the, he has all this knowledge in his head. It's just, it's just fascinating. So yeah, I was taking notes and I've got, we're going to come back and do part two because I've got some, I've got, I want to ask about who coined the term. Uh, I want to talk about the artwork on the book cover. Um, why was it called a failed vision empire? Like, well, how did the word empire even come out of it? So there's okay. more that we're gonna we're gonna talk about when we come back. Is there something about you? Is it, and I ask this question sometimes that only Daniel knows and your wife knows or your family. Is there something about you that you like? Is there like a favorite food? Like you like crawdads on with mayonnaise or you know, or, you know, French fries and peanut butter. Is there something that, that you really like, like a food that you just like, dude, I'll drive a hundred miles for this one thing. Okay. This one is kind of specific, Ooh. but I grew up in Maryland cool. and because Maryland is known for crabs and anything we do has, and I don't know if, uh, I don't know how far this has spread old day seasoning, um, it's just like a, it's a spice, but it's a seasoning we put on crabs in Maryland. And it, it's kind of spread, but it's just one of those things. 
they have, and it's a regional thing, what are known as crab chips. So they take that seasoning, and it's hard to describe. It's like a salty barbecue-type taste, and they make chips. (laughs) Like, I would do anything for those bags of chips. So when I'm in Kentucky and I go back home sometimes, uh, my family will send me bags of crab chips because they're so good. But anything, I don't. I think it's more just like thinking about home. But anytime you put something with Old Bay on it, whether that's crabs, um, any type of seafood, it's really good on top of it. But yeah, that's the one thing that I I just love. Well, if you guys are wondering, like, go back and rewind that last two minutes because as I was asking him about a favorite food, just faintly you could hear him go. And I, I was, I, and I I was like, oh, no. And I was like, oh, my gosh, he's got something good. It's going to be great. <laughs> so, you know, if the families li- – listen, if if the Burge family's listening, which I'm sure there will be a few, like send them some chips. Like buy like a case <laughs> of chips, mail them to Kentucky. But if you do that, make sure that you make it, you know, postage upon delivery. So make him pay for the postage. And um, <laughs> But get him some – listen, Burge family, get him some chips. He wants chips. So we are definitely going to come back. Um, I've got a bunch of questions to ask. We haven't even spoken about the end of it. Like, how did it end? You know, what was the defining moment that it ended? And it may not be anything, but I'm sure that we'll, as I continue to read his book, and his book is A Failed Vision Empire, The Collapse of the Manifest Destiny from 1845 to 1872. You can buy it at booksellers, but really go up to Amazon uh, get it at Amazon because it'll save you on the shipping, especially because we are, I just found out this week that we, we were listened to in six countries around the world. And I'm hoping to get more, you know, by 2023, we'll have more. So Amazon sometimes is a better deal. Um, I want to thank my friends over at the Tombstone Epitaph, uh, Arizona's longest running newspaper. You can be a subscriber at tombstoneepitaph.com. And my second family over at the Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org. I urge you to join that. We got so much cool stuff going on. And go over to the YouTube page because there's a nine-part series being uh, with my friend uh, Victoria Wilcox and uh, uh, Dr. Gary Roberts about the history of Doc Holliday and Eddie Lanham and Pam Potter and all the folks at the board members and people putting this together. It is so good. So go on the YouTube page and and watch this series that's going on right now. It's a one-on-one interview and you get Dr. Gary Roberts and, uh, and Victoria Wilcox and they're just, they're killing it. Like go watch this. It is so good. As always, I appreciate you guys a bunch. Uh, if you are listening on iTunes or Spotify or wherever, including YouTube, please leave a rating and a review. It helps with distribution. Uh, excuse me. And let uh, let folks know about it because I appreciate you guys. We don't make any money on this. And uh, uh, I just want to get all this Western history and Daniel's story about his uh, favorite uh, crab chips with the special salt that's like a barbecue salt. Like, the world's got to know that. I want everybody to know about Daniel. Um, So anyways, I appreciate you guys a bunch, and uh, thanks so much, and safe travels, and we'll see you soon.